Hello, listeners. This is Bachcast, episode number 17. And what you just heard was the jig from what I think is my favorite of Bach's English suites, the second English suite, BWV 807. And if you listen to our first uh, episode that included the English suites, number one, I included a recording by Blandine Rano, and that is her playing the jig. Um, and of course, she's playing on a harpsichord. Uh, she's playing, uh, she's one of those performers that it takes a historical uh, approach to performing Bach. And um, probably after this episode, I'm not going to keep defining what that is, but it's sometimes written out as HIP, Historically Informed Performance or Practice. Um, it used to be called Authentic, and you would see uh, written on albums, performed on authentic instruments. And uh, enough people, including myself, have written about that and um, really probably isn't the most accurate way to describe what people are doing musically. Um, and it actually turns out that my favorite performance of this work uh, is a recording I have on the piano. And we'll eventually, of course, as I do in, in many of these episodes, kind of work up to my favorite. So let's let's just review what a suite is. We're not going to do this every time, obviously, because if you listen to these in order, you're kind of going to pick up on this. So the English suites were published uh, in Bach's lifetime. No, um, they came down to us and they were referred to as um, uh, at some point described, perhaps they were written for an English patron. Uh, perhaps they were uh, written for export in England. Um, we don't have many connections in Bach's life with England. Uh, of course, Handel, who Bach never got to meet in person, but was born the same year as Bach, um, did export to London and to England very well. And, uh, of course, Handel moved to England and became continued his success as a composer there, um, writing, of course, many operas and, and oratorios, such as The Messiah, right? So... Bach is writing these these suites, and this is one of his first forays into writing keyboard works. And we've got to keep in mind Bach's career in the background. Um, he was born into a culture where religion had a very uh, important part of life, and he just kind of fell into, I think, this idea of religious music. And, of course, other composers of the time uh, dabbled in it, but then they they found uh, careers outside of that. And a, a good example, maybe a, a comparison, would be Vivaldi. Uh, now, Vivaldi writes religious music, obviously for the Catholic Church, not the Lutheran Church. Vivaldi actually becomes a priest. Vivaldi is remembered today probably not so much for his religious works, uh, like Bach is perhaps for his cantatas, but he's remembered for his what? His concertos, his, his violin concertos specifically. And he kind of had this non-religious association in Venice to perform and write these works. So when we look at Bach, it's, it's maybe a slightly... Um, this is his kind of way to dabble and to show off a bit 
in a way that maybe uh, he wasn't able to in the church. And we believe these these suites came before his move to Leipzig. And so he's developing skills and he's putting his pen to paper. And boy, does he come up with some neat ideas. Now, this suite is in A minor. And like so many of these suites, they're organized in kind of a French model. He opens with a prelude, an allemande, a courant, a sarabande, a bourré, a second bourré, and a jig. And for those of you wondering, what are those dances again? The prelude typically would be a slower, slower piece just to kind of warm up the instrument. And probably one of the best uh, examples of a prelude is the one that opens Bach's well-tempered clavier, uh, the one in C major. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, go look it up because it's just kind of this, it's a neat little piece of music. Um, it happens to be kind of easy to play. And it's just arpeggiations of, of chords. And so if you take that as kind of an uh, archetype or a... Uh, archetype rather, or uh, a, just an exemplar, warming up the instrument. So this one's a little different. It's a little more complex. It's a little more melody forward. And we know that, of course, Bach is trying to insert fugal or contrapuntal elements in almost everything he writes. So I want, to, want you to listen to this, this prelude and listen to it for, well, see if you hear a counterpoint in it or not. It'd be kind of an interesting approach, I think, to listen for what he might be doing in terms of passing a melody or passing rhythm between one hand and the other. Rhythm. He's got some rhythmic things going on in the left hand that keep repeating some little repeating patterns. But if you were listening very carefully at the beginning, he opens it up like one of his inventions. And then that same theme comes in the left hand and follows it. He starts right off the bat with uh, imitative voices, a little bit of counterpoint. And then the counterpoint kind of loses out to this very strong ideas he's presenting in the right hand. And it almost would be just an invention. This, this really is written in the stock of one of his, his simpler pieces that he used for, for teaching his son the art of imitation, the art of invention, of interesting idea and how to Treat it contrapuntally, how to, how to have an idea chase itself, have rhythmic motives keep repeating and keep building upon one another. This is what Bach does so well. But then in the middle of it, he kind of changes course and 
he does some interesting things. If you actually watch the score, he does something interesting because he doesn't use true two voices. He starts inserting a third voice, and then all of a sudden that momentum kind of pauses, and the secondary theme comes out. And it's it's played in such a way with, with harmony that's oh, it just pulls you in. It's so rich and um, it's just really good music. fair to me to say there wasn't repetition in just one hand. Obviously, in both hands, there's these repetitive patterns. And it gets to the point where it's almost like um, reminiscent of what we might expect for the harp. Just repeating patterns, strumming, if you will. And it kind of uh, evokes a different instrument, perhaps a lute, perhaps a guitar. And, of course, there is a, there's a history behind a prelude written in such a way. And so Bach is kind of giving us a lot of rich musical material, giving us multiple themes. Uh, counterpoint is kind of behind the scenes, but then he's got these strong motives and ideas that he's putting on top of one another. And it, it really is one of the more interesting uh, preludes to, one of the, to, the, to these suites. So that's the opening, and again, that's Blandine Renault. This is her 2011 recording that uh, I believe came out in the Naive Opus 111 group. I lose track of, of what label they're using on there, but it's the, um, the major music group is the Out There uh, label, and they have a number of, of sub-labels, sub-brands under that. So... Nice, strong performance, very clear in terms of the recording quality, nice-sounding harpsichord. And uh, if you like the, the harpsichord approach for these, um, you might also seek out uh, some different performers because the English suites are kind of, well, a lot of box music's popular, but... This one in particular is very popular. You're going to find a lot of renditions probably on, on YouTube, and you can find probably some, of course, not just on the harpsichord, but piano too. Uh, you can get a range of different performances in addition to what I can offer you here out of my own collection. So we're going to move next to the same piece of music, played a little more quickly. And I'm going to cut to the chase and let you know that this is my favorite recording of the second English suite. And we're going to be listening to a pianist who, who did not record the whole set of suites. This is her album uh, entitled Just Bach. It's on the piano. And the performer is Anne-Marie McDermott. And this came out in 2006. Thank you. 
So after I faded out the uh, the prelude, I gave you a little bit of the courant. And I think one of the things you really notice that stands out about her performing is she has a very light touch, a very uh, separated touch. So then each note kind of speaks very clearly in terms of the articulation. She has obviously a virtuoso technique that allows her to do that uh, very flawlessly, uh, very quickly if she, if she chooses to. And in addition to all of that, she is a very, what I would say, musical player. She is shaping the line. She's using dynamics to great effect. And she kind of reminds me a little bit of, a, of a, an Angela Hewitt, uh, who is a Canadian pianist who's recorded almost all of Bach's solo works. I say almost just because I really haven't paid that much attention or collected everything by Miss Hewitt, but um, I, I believe I've read that she has recorded all of Bach's solo harpsichord works. Um, and so Hewitt has a, has a light touch. She really is, uh, does not pay real careful attention to maybe all the historical um, nuances she she is foremost a pianist and doesn't apologize for it. Um, but to me, Miss McDermott here that we've been listening to is almost like Hewitt on steroids a little bit. She's just turned up the volume just a little bit in terms of the intensity of the playing, which really speaks to my uh, aesthetics of, of the way I like to hear the music. And, and this recording just spoke to me. Now... There are two really special dance movements in this suite. The prelude's kind of good. I'm sorry you didn't get to listen to the whole thing, but I would encourage you, obviously, to go out and buy a recording. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a neat piece of music. And the Allemande is nice, the Courant is nice, and then we get to the Sarabande. And... I will say that Bach has written some good Sarabons, but this might be one of the best. Uh, it's just an intensely deep, moving, profound piece of music. I love this piece. And I really think it sings so well on the piano, and I think Miss McDermott does an excellent job. So without further ado, the Sarabond from English Suite Number no. 2 by Johann Sebastian Bach.
pretty cool, huh? Uh, this is this is an interesting. Um, again, in the prelude, I pointed out that Bach starts adding in the third voice. Pretty much, if you're looking at the other uh, uh, movements, he's writing in two parts, but then will sneak in a third voice when it's convenient, either to fill out the harmony or just to add something. Um, for instance, in the third movement of the Courant, this, this third voice comes in, which is just a little strange. And then it comes in at the end, kind of fills out the harmony. Then we get to the Sarabond, and he is is playing three parts on the right hand, and the bass kind of separated. Um, almost as if uh, it's it's three parts plus basso continuo. And so you da 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 and then two voices. It's like almost like an answer, right? You have this kind of big orchestral opening, and then you go to a solo violin and a bass or a solo oboe or something. And and so it's just kind of interesting writing. It's almost as if this had been written for an orchestra and it had been reduced here for hands on a keyboard. And I, I don't know the history behind this work beyond what I'm telling you about, what I'm kind of seeing on the surface has been kind of interesting uh, in terms of normally what we see uh, in box keyboard works. We see a distinct number of voices and it's only maybe at the end of a piece that he would fill out harmony. And so the second, as we've been talking about all along, binary, binary construct, we get a repeat and you heard a lot of ornamentation. And the, th the little secret here is that in, in the score that's been preserved, there is a written out, figured, in other words, lots of black notes. Um, he's, he's written out an interpretation um, maybe an improvisation had been written out. When I say figured, I don't mean the same way that we've been talking about figured bass, but just he, he's writing out a lot of extra notes. Um, if we talk about black notes in music, it's typically there's, there's a lot more ink on the page. And so um, this has been written in quarter notes and eighth notes, and now all of a sudden we have 16th and some 32nd notes. And you've probably heard that. And then it started into the second half where I kind of faded out and similar construct to the other. We start out in C major, the related major key to A minor. And again, rich, lots of notes in the right hand. And then this opportunity, this, this kind of answer back with just two voices and then the voices come in again. So there's definitely a structure to this piece, uh, but the, the harmony is where he leads those opening phrases is just really, really, I think, arresting music. So that's that's one of the highlights of this suite. The second highlight is the Borés. 
And a bourree is always, to me, kind of an interesting dance. It's it's a dance in two, which means it's you know it's one two one two, and it tends to be fast. And if you look at the score in this one, he's he's purely writing uh, in two voices. And when I say two berets, of course, they're uh, we've seen this in the past when you've got double dances. The second one tends to be in a contrasting key, and that's what he's doing here. And the contrasting key is not C major, which we might expect, but it's A major, um, which is kind of like a little um, island of relief because the first bore, it tends to be a little intense. Um, it is driving it again. Um, it's got a really cool little theme that's going on, and we'll, we'll of course, explore that in just a moment. In the second boray, he adds a, th a third, a third voice, and so there's um, it, many times throughout, he's asking the the right hand to play um, two notes. Could also be done by the left hand, um, and then near the end, we actually get four voices. So in this suite, he's been no slave to just keeping a solid number of voices throughout, which again leads me to kind of believe, hmm, were these arrangements of something else that, that had a thicker uh, texture to them? Um, we're not going to have time to, to listen to the jig. The jig is also kind of cool, and it returns to the, the A minor key. Some performers will do a kickback to the bore, they'll do the da capo thing. Um, it's actually written out that way in the score I'm looking at, which is not an original score. It is a, uh, it's the version that was published with all of Bach's works in late 1800s. So at the end you'll see it says bore 1 DC da capo, meaning go back and play it again. And actually written out are, are two different endings. Uh, I'm not sure we've seen this yet in a work by Bach, at least when I've not been looking carefully at the score. But when you have repeats, sometimes you want the first time and the second time to have a different ending. It may mean that you have uh, a lead-in to go back to the beginning or a lead-in to go to the next section. And so if you're actually looking at the score and you see that one and two, that's basically what that is. After the first time of playing, you take the second ending. And uh, so with, I'm going to stop talking and I give you this pretty incredible piece of music. And I'll give it to you by uh, Anne Marie McDermott. She does a fabulous job with it. I love the energy, I love the drive she does. And then we're going to have a little departure. I'm going to share some other versions of with you of the Bore. And I think it speaks to the power it has over us. And I say us, I hope it has a power over you because I think this is one of the the highlight of the entire English suites. Uh, not that you're not going to ever want to tune in if we do, you know, the third one and listen to that one. But this this really sticks out as an incredible piece of music. And one of the questions I ask myself is, why why is it that way? If you look at it, you never guess. I mean, it just looks like some notes, and okay, it looks pretty simple. 
And when you hear it, you're like, gosh, this is really some, some cool stuff. At least I hope you think so. And I, I know that many other performers likely think so because it's been rearranged and, and played and celebrated in some different ways. But first, Anne-Marie McDermott from BWV 807, the second English suite. performance she's she's very much thinking of the structure of the work so the first time around she's playing with what i would call restraint and and the right hand kind of dominates in the texture the second time in the repeat um, she lets the left hand kind of emerge um, those rising notes kind of are punched out a bit and of course the dynamic the second time around is much more intense she's just kind of letting it go and saying Hey, you've heard it once, but I've got to let this rip. This is this is some cool stuff. Um, very engaging invention, I would say, that Bach has come up with. There's a rhythmic drive to it, but it's just a cool little melody. And it's perpetual. It's like a machine. It's just, it just goes, and it's really cool. Now, the next version we're going to listen to might make it a little easier to hear the two parts. And this is a little... Um, probably not expecting the instruments. So I'm not going to tell you what they are. Uh, but this, um, this comes from a recording featuring uh, a young man by the name of Stefan Taminga. Mr. Tabinga is the recorder player playing alto recorder there. And this comes from a recording uh, from 2011. And he's joined by Axel Wolf and Domen Marinic, Marinsic, excuse me. And they are playing in a trio format, actually, of course. So uh, the recorder kind of plays basically the right hand. You've got a lute that uh, is kind of playing... Uh, the left hand, and then you've got a viola da gamba that's kind of filling in the texture there, and of course becomes invaluable when more than one voice is there. And this recording is, they've basically done arrangements of a uh, few of Bach's French and English suites, and they're using instruments or sounds from Bach's sound world, which is kind of interesting. It's not a, uh, a, an arrangement for a modern ensemble. 
And yet, I'm not sure that these are arrangements that make the most sense in terms of um, rethinking them, rethinking box works. But they do offer us, and I always enjoy some of these um, these arrangements for no matter what instruments they're written for, but um, they really help us hear, I think, at least for me, the the difference between the parts and some of the musical lines just stick out to us in a way that might be more difficult for us to hear in the texture of one single instrument, like just a harpsichord, just a piano. So kind of like the recording, but there's a couple things that I find challenging with it. Number one, uh, the fact that they've chosen an alto recorder, which is a, which is the, um, if you're thinking of singing voices, it's not the soprano, it's the alto. It's, it's the one that's a little lower. Um, which to me is an odd choice in terms of its range and where we might expect to hear the melody compared to the range of the other instruments. Uh, that said, too, there's something just slightly missing for me in terms of an interpretation. Uh, it doesn't quite, and I, I've used this term in some of my reviews, they're not really milking all of the uh, nuances that somebody like Anne-Marie McDermott has tried to pull out uh, in her piano performances. And that's not to say there's only one way of doing it. Uh, there's definitely some dynamic shading going on there. Um, there are some choices being made with articulation and when to breathe. Um, and I like it. I just don't think it would be my go-to version of it. However, there is a similar, similarly minded group that has also recorded the Bore. And to me, this is one of these, i put it up there with Miss McDermott. It's one of those recordings I keep coming back to. And unfortunately, they did not record the whole second English suite. They just recorded two movements. And so what we're going to hear now and what we'll finish with today is again, the Bore um, in A minor from the suite. And this is by a group called Red Priest. And Red Priest probably came on the scene most famous for their interpretations of Vivaldi. But the instruments we're going to hear here are violin, cello, harpsichord, and a sopranino recorder, the high recorder. Um, higher than a vocal line, really. And uh, for me, it just makes it sparkle. But what you're going to notice here is they are... Uh, well, if you look at the album, you can kind of see they're on fire. They're wearing some red clothes. But they are really um, probably pushing style to to a limit. Uh, I would not necessarily say that Bach would have ever heard something like this in his time. And yet they're using Baroque instruments. And yet you're going to hear that they let things loose a little bit. They get a little jazzy, especially when it comes to the keyboard keyboard part in their arrangement. But I think it's just a lot of fun, and it's a real celebration of just one of Bach's most extraordinary uh, dances in this collection. It's just a lot of fun. So this is Red Priest. Red Priest. 
Thank you for listening. This has been BachCast, episode number 17. I'm your host, John Hendren. You can find out more about this podcast, including show notes, by visiting our website, bieberfan.org. That's spelled B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot org.